please turn back with me, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Thanks, guys. We have been in um, Galatians for about a month and a half now, um, not including taking a couple of breaks from for holidays and, and other reasons, but we've been in the book of, or the of Paul to the Galatians for about a month and a half, and I wonder if you were asked the question, what is Galatians about, uh, what you would say? Well, I hope you would say something like, Galatians is about what the gospel really is. That Galatians is not about uh, who Paul thinks he is, even though he, he does touch on that. Uh, it's not even about the church in Galatia, although it's written to the church in Galatia. It's, it's not even about how leaders handle disagreements. It's not about how titans clash, as we saw last week with Paul and Peter. It is about what the gospel really is. And today we come to the, the heart of the issue. Uh, today we come to what has been called the, the theological core of the letter of Galatians. And I've titled this, entitled this sermon, uh, Defining the Gospel, because that's what I think Paul really does in this passage. This is one of the most important theological passages on the gospel in the New Testament. Probably one of the most important paragraphs um, in, in Scripture. Uh, it is a passage that really works as a hinge. It, we'll see that it, it talks all about the implications of what uh, we talked about last week with Paul's confrontation with Peter, um, what Peter's withdrawal from the uh, fellowship table implies for the gospel. He's going to build on that. He's going to give us some implications of, of that whole discussion. Uh, but not only does it focus on Peter's issue, it is a, it is a passage that projects us and, and thrusts us into chapters 3 and chapters 4 uh, with the application of Paul of what the gospel is. Everything going forward is really it's, it's an expansion, it's, a, it's an explanation, it's a, an application of what he's going to say in this passage today. So it's vital for us to try to understand what Paul is saying in, in verses 15 through 21 of chapter 2. Even though this passage is not a simple passage to understand, even, even in English as we read this, uh, you, you, you may think, what is he actually saying here? And Peter himself uh, said that, you know, Paul writes some things that are hard to us, for us to understand. And I think this is a good example of that. Uh, but the simple truth, if we could boil it down to a, a simple truth of what we want to take away today, I think it is this, that the truth of the gospel is that the message of the gospel leads to justification, which is accompanied by the transformation in the life of the person who puts their trust in Christ alone through faith alone. That's going to be the, 
the point that we want to take away today. That if you put your faith in Christ alone, through faith alone, God will work in your life and he will declare you justified. He will declare you righteous. And with that declaration comes a transformation in your life. It says, he, he says that, that in chapter 1 that Christ gave himself to deliver us from the present evil age. Through this process of, of trust in Christ by faith alone, we are, we are moved from the present evil age into a new age. This statement begs some questions. What is justification? What does a transformed life look like? And why does this come through faith alone? He's going to go on in, in verse 19. He, he's going to, to say that uh, through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And I, I think that's really the crux of what he's, he's going to say, that I died to the law. There is no way to God other than through Christ. And in verses 15 and, and 16, he's going to talk about that. What, is, what does that mean? What does justification mean in our lives? And then in verses 17 through 21, he's going to talk about what does it mean to live? What does it mean to live to God? And what does that look like? And so in verses uh, 15 and 16, he's going to define this aspect of the truth of the gospel for us, that, that the, the um, justification, the gospel, uh, faith through Christ, it looks the same for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it looks the same. It doesn't matter if you're saved when you're eight years old or when you're 38 years old. When you're eight years old and you've, you've never done anything really except disobey your parents or when you're 38, if you've lived a life of, uh, of drugs and alcohol and sin, you come to Christ the same way. There is one way to Christ. It doesn't matter if you're male, female, Jew, or Gentile. He's going to define that for us. And then in the last verses 17 through 21, he's going to define another aspect of the truth of the gospel, that if you are justified along with justification, the result of that is going to be a transformed life. So what does that look like? He's going to say really that a life that has been justified by faith alone in Christ alone is a life whose actions verify the words. That faith is more than a simple mental assent to some facts. It is more than uh, simply saying uh, Jesus is Savior and, and no more than that. It's more than, it's more than praying a prayer when you're, when you're eight years old and nothing ever changes in your life. It's more than just believing that Jesus is a Savior. Faith is putting your trust in Jesus. It's also believing some facts about Jesus, but it's also living a life as Jesus would have lived that life. The church is self-deceived if we think that we can live immoral lives, that we can, um, we can check up with someone who's not our spouse, or we can defraud people of their money, or we can live in constant tension at home with, with our spouse or, or our children, or we can, we can do all those things and, and um, 
then pretend that we are in some way at peace with God and enjoying a position of justification, of righteousness, of being right with God. What Paul is going to say is that those who have been justified lived justly. Those who have been made holy in Christ live holy lives. Those who know God's love, love. Those who know God's forgiveness, forgive. Those who are called out of the world do not live in the world, and they call others out of the world. Those who have died to the flesh and those who have died to the law, he's going to say, live by the Spirit. We're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. So what is justification by faith, and why is that important? Martin Luther described the doctrine of justification by faith as the article of faith, of the faith, that decides whether the church is standing or falling. Whether the church is standing or falling. What does he mean by that? Well, J.I. Packer said this, that by this he meant that when this doctrine is understood, believed, and preached as it was in New Testament times, the church stands in the grace of God and is alive. But where there is neglect, overlaid or denied the church falls from grace and its life drains away leaving it in a state of darkness and death no wonder paul fights so hard for what he fights for in the book of galatians you know if providence church is a church that is alive or a church that that will be alive it's not because we're just a group of really nice people. But it's because we are people who have been justified by faith in Christ and not by works. What does that mean? It means that the gospel is greater than programs. It means that the cross is greater than committees. It doesn't mean we don't do things well. But it means that everything we do is founded in the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. That's why we teach the gospel. That's why we, we preach the gospel. Because everything that is done in the church needs to be based on this doctrine. So before we look at what it is, just a word about what it is not. This is a bit of a pet peeve, but I grew up in a church and well-meaning well and, and um, every now and then cliche-driven, and I like this particular cliche, and it stuck with me for all of my life until um, I got into seminary and I started looking at it a little closer. And you will know this, that justification is, and you're all saying it, just as if I never sin. Don't use that as your definition of justification. Why? Because at best, justification is much more than that. And at worst, it's not a true statement. 
because I am a bankrupt sinner. Someone said it, put it this way, that through Adam, the family estate was in foreclosure and I kept piling up debt every day. That is who, who we are. Scripture says that every thought of their heart was sinful all the time. Paying the debt for my sin would be like me paying off the national debt of America. That is, that is who we are. The fact is, I am a sinner. And I should always recognize that I, I'm not innocent. What is justification? Well, it's a legal term, so it's a picture of God in heaven, the heavenly judge, and he looks at me and he looks at you and he says, you are guilty. He doesn't declare me innocent. He doesn't declare me just as if I'd never sinned. He says, you are, you are guilty, but your debt is paid. You are forgiven. That my debt is paid by Christ. When he was on the cross, he said it, didn't he? It is finished. It is, it is paid in full. Not only that, not only has my debit side been paid, but my credit side has gone way up. Because not only has my debt been paid, but I have been covered in the righteousness of Christ. That is justification. I am in a position of righteousness. When God looks on me, it's as though I have a, a coat wrapped around me and across the back shoulders it says righteous. And he looks at that and he says, righteous, guilty, sinner, declared guilty, but forgiven and righteousness because Christ righteousness has been put on my account. So justification does not uh, put us in a place, some have said, it's as though you're in a place before sin. I have never been in a place before sin. I was born into sin. And I don't believe God plays the game of pretending that Rex never sinned. When I look at it that way, when I understand it that way from that perspective, then, then life takes on a totally different meaning for me. I no longer look at myself and I am just as if I had never sinned. That makes me feel really good. It makes me feel a lot better than a lot of other people that I look at. But when I know I am a sinner and I am guilty and I have been forgiven and my debt has been paid, then I look at Christ with gratitude because he loved me and he was submissive to the Father, to death, even death on the cross. And therefore, I love him and I can love others and I can live a life of submission because of this. So justification, although I am a terrible sinner, he declared me righteous. Those are really the same word group, justification and righteous. He declared me righteous 
not just as if I never sinned. So with that understanding, let's look at these verses, verses 15 through 21. First of all, verses 15, uh, 15 and 16. The truth of the gospel is that justification is a common conversion experience for all believers. I think that's, that's the main idea he's trying to get across here in verses 15 and 16, that justification received by faith alone in Christ alone it is a fact of a common conversion experience for everyone. So he goes, he begins in, in verse 15, and he says this, If we know uh, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works, uh, by works of the law, but through faith, in Jesus Christ, so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one, no one is justified. So what does we do here? He, he tells us, first of all, what we know. He says, this is what we know, and this is what we have experience. Paul's strategy here is going, is going to be to put Peter and the Jewish Christians and Barnabas put them all in the same camp as the Judaizers. He's going to say, he's, he's going to say, this is what the Judaizers are saying, this is what we know, and this is what we have experienced. One of the difficulties in understanding this is, is this passage is really who is he speaking about here when he says we know. Who is that? We that we. Uh, this is what we know. This is what we have experienced. I think what Paul is going to say, it's hard to know uh, if you have an NIV version of the Bible, you'll see quotation marks from verse 15 all the way through verse 21. Now this is just another, this is part of the whole quote that he has for Peter. If you have the ESV version, you're going to see quotation marks only, only in verse uh, 14. If you, though Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Where's the quote? Well, in the end of, at the end of the day, it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't change what he is saying. He's saying, this is what we know, and this is what we have experienced. And so in verse 15, he starts out with, with a, kind of a strange statement. He says, we are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. That seems a bit strong for what Paul is saying. What is he saying? This is... He's just giving the stereotypical view of Gentiles by the Jews. That uh, the Gentiles are those who are not under the law of God. They're those who do not have revelation from God. They live outside of God. They are not God's people. They are in a group of sinners. He's not saying that we are Jews and, and so we never sin and they're Gentiles and they just sin all the time. Rather, they are sinners from the perspective of the Pharisees. Remember in, in, in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 12, when he talks about we're all one in Christ and he's talking to them and he says, remember that, uh, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of, of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise. You were sinners. You had none of that. So he's saying, if we are not 
like these sinners, then what do we know? What do we know? We're Jews. We have revelation from God. We have the law of Moses. We have tried to obey the law. We did not break the ceremonial laws. We were circumcised. We know the dietary laws. We know all of that. But what did we learn by knowing all of that? We learned that a person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We are all sinners. Jews and Gentiles, we're all sinners in the normal usage of the word. Jesus even taught, taught us that, didn't he? Remember Matthew 5? Remember the Sermon on the Mount? Remember who the sinners are? We're murderers because we get angry. We're adulterers because we think those thoughts in our mind. We're liars because we break our oaths. We have sinned. We're, we're all sinners. Remember the two men who went up to the temple and prayed, the Pharisee and the tax collector. And the Pharisee says, I give tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. And what did the Pharisee say? He didn't even lift his eyes and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what did Jesus say? He said, that man went to his home justified. That man went to his home justified. This is what we know. And this is what we have experienced in verse, in verse 16. This is what we have experienced, that the law pronounced condemnation, that the gospel reveals that all people are sinners and, and equally in need of finding justification in Christ. That man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. And that is why Paul says we're, we're Christians. We're all Christians. We've been called Christians in Antioch. We haven't been called Jews. We have been called Christians. On the cross, Jesus died for our law-breaking. He says, we believed in Jesus Christ. We believe this, Peter. And we understand that justification, uh, understand justification and faith, that it comes only by faith. So don't compel the Gentiles to be Jews. What's Paul's point? I think he's got two points here in these verses. The dispute was not faith in Christ. Both sides said you need to have faith in Christ. The dispute was whether works of the law needed to be added to Christ for faith and justification. Paul says Christ and not works is a path to justification. Paul's not, he's not arguing this. He's not arguing that Gentiles should be included with Jews as the people of God. He's arguing the opposite. He's arguing that Jews should be included with Gentiles as sinners. That's the way it needs to be, Peter. And all have sinned, and obedience to the law cannot make them right with God, cannot make them justified, 
Only total obedience to Christ by faith can do that. That's his first point. The second point, I believe, is this, that this is the way to salvation. Not, I'm a good person. I think God's going to let me into heaven. Or not, the only thing I want to do is help people. And if I help people, he's going to let me into heaven. Or not that I walked down the aisle when I was eight years old. Of course, my life never changed. Or not that my parents are Christians and they've taken me to church since I was a child. But God, I am a wretched sinner. And I come, I come by the by the gift of faith in Christ alone and nothing else. And I repent of my sins and I submit my life to Christ as the only hope of forgiveness and new life. Just like the the tax collector, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We all come to Christ the same way. The second truth I think he has, the truth of the gospel, is that justification always leads to a transformed life. These are all implications of this common version conversion experience that, that we all go through. If you have trusted Christ in your Savior as your Savior, you have been justified, that has happened the same way to everyone, and there are implications of that. What are they? Verses 17 through 19. But if in our endeavor to be uh, justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? We'll just stop right there for a minute. This is a, a, a difficult verse. Uh, we again uh, listen and try to hear what's going on on the other end of the, the phone line. What's going on that, that Paul is, is answering? It seems that Paul is, is stating the objection of the Judaizers about eating with Gentiles. That Jews don't eat with Gentiles. And so Paul is saying, we're seeking to be justified in Christ faith and not uh, works of the law. So what does that mean? You know, we like laws. We think laws are good. Laws keep us safe. Laws keep us hemmed in. When, when we were in Russia and we, were, we had the opportunity to start a Bible college not knowing what we were doing, we, we tried an experiment that, that we would keep the, the rules of the class and the school at a minimum and, and teach the gospel, and the gospel would change lives. And what do we find? We find that students came late to class. Why? Because we didn't have a rule that says you need to be in class at this time. We like rules. Rules make us feel safe. We like laws. But that means that uh, if we say we don't have the law, we have no laws, that means that we're rejecting the law what does that mean to a Jew? It means we have become without law. It means that we are lawless. We, we have become just like the Gentiles. We are sinners in the category of verse 15. We're all sinners in need of forgiveness. And the implication is without the law, we have no guide. We don't know how to do that. 
And Paul is saying, does this mean Christ promotes sin? Does this mean that Christ is telling you to live without knowing how to live? It sounds a little bit unusual. And Paul says, God forbid, certainly not. May it not be that way. The implication of that certainly not for Paul is that life in Christ is, is not a life in sin. Rather, life in Christ is life in the Spirit. He's going to say that in chapter 5. And instead of sin, Christ promotes purity. Instead of sin, Christ promotes holiness. Instead of sin, Christ promotes love. And what was formerly found in the law, the way to live, the, the guide or, or how to uh, do God's will, that has been fulfilled in Christ, in the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's why he says in chapter 5, uh, verse 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 6, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul is saying you don't live by the law to, uh, to please Christ. Christ is giving you the Spirit. The law is on your heart. Verse 18 kind of confirms this idea. He says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It gives the reason for Paul's rejection of the, the logic of the Judaizers. Why? Why does it do that? Well, he gives two reasons. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. I proved myself to be a transgressor. Why? The Judaizers accused Paul of promoting sin by doing away with the law, but Paul denies that. His answer is this. Sin could be encouraged if, having turned to God by faith in Christ Jesus, I return to the law as a basis of my relationship to God. That would be sin. So how does that promote sin? Because they would, they would be turning from the Savior. They would be turning from their salvation. They would be turning from the one the law anticipated. What's the implication? The implication is this. In converting to Christ... The Christian, especially in this context, the Jewish Christian, forfeits any opportunity to ever return to the law as his primary way of life. That's why he says in verse 19, for I have died to the law so that I might live to God. If I go back to the law, I'm proving myself a sinner because I'm rejecting Christ. I'm rejecting everything I know. I'm rejecting everything I have experienced. Why? Because verse 19, we're dead to the law. I died to the law. Don't define life by law. Life is defined by a relationship with Christ. And at salvation, I have no more connection to the law. Any of it. Just what he says in, in Colossians uh, Colossians 2, he says this, 
For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath or anything related to the law. Don't do it. Why? Because, because Christ is the new master. Because the law of Christ is on your heart. I obey out of love, not out of fear of breaking a set of rules. What is the lesson? The lesson is this, at conversion, when you're saved, when you trust Christ as your Savior, the Christian, especially the Jew, forfeits ever going back to the law as the primary way of being right with God. You know, our Russian students, they wanted rules. They even asked us for them. And Paul is saying, you don't need them. The law is on your heart. We live for Christ. We live holy lives, not because we have a set of rules, because, but because that's who we are. The law is no longer external, it's internal. It's who I am, not because we have a, a rule book to check off what I do right to be approved by God or to check off things I don't do to be approved by God. We live out of gratitude because the law is on our heart and Christ gave himself for us. So the question becomes, how do we do that? The answer is it in verse 20 and 21 with two uh, amazing verses, especially verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He explains death and the law and alive to God. And in verse 20, he says, Christ's unjust, innocent death shows how totally, how, how totally I am de depraved. It shows what kind of sinner I am. If it required the death of Jesus for the forgiveness of my sin, it shows my depravity. And my sin required the death of an innocent Savior. And if I see that, then everything in my life that has the word self on it dies. Self-reliance, self-exaltation, self-pride, self-aggrandizement, everything dies. Becoming Christian does not mean to decide to live by some doctrine of the Bible. Becoming a Christian means death. That a person who has died with Christ, his pride is murdered. His life has been connected to Christ. The old I dies. But I do live. It's not an easy thing for to understand Paul here, I do live. There is a new me. There is an old I who died. There is a new I 
who lives. It is the me that always looks to Christ and looks away from my self-reliance and my self-exaltation. The new person is, is dead to self and alive to Christ. The new self is dependent on Christ for life and all that Christ requires. He says in verse 21, I'm not going to nullify grace. I'm not going back to the law and nullify grace. If seeing any other way to produce a new creation by any works, then God's grace is working in some other way than Christ explained it. Because only the cross brought this about. And it's brought about by Jewish identity when, when, when God, if, if it is brought about by Jewish identity, by uh, circumcision and by food laws or by believing any part of the law makes me right with God, then God was unjust in sending Christ to die. Then God was cruel in sending his son to die. And Paul says, I will not live by the law because Christ's death means everything. The Judaizers did not honor Christ because they made, they made his sacrifice meaningless. They made his sacrifice mean nothing because they, they work to be accepted by God. See, by adding Christ, they actually subtract Christ. And Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God. I have died to the law. I am alive with Christ. He says in verse 20, no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This does not mean that as... Um, John the Baptist said that I must decrease so that he must increase or I must stop baptizing so he may start baptizing. That's not the idea. Paul, what Paul means is not that he must diminish in some way, but he is contrasting here who he thought he was with who he really is now. He's contrasting the old self with the new self, the self-promoting, the excluding person, that person is dead. That person is dead by virtue of Christ being in me, by having a union with Christ. I become who I really am. What does that mean? It means I can think about my gifts and I can think about uh, my skills and my abilities and I can be just honest about them. I don't have to do anything to be accepted by Christ, but now I contribute freely to the community with what I can do, and, and, and maybe I don't do it that well. But it's a contribution to the community, and why can I do that? Because that's who I am. It's all related to Christ in me. I can lead or I can follow. Because who I am does not make me approved by Christ. I can be a servant of all. That means in my conversations, the cross is preeminent. In my community, 
Whatever I do is because of the cross. In my family, it's all Christ that is the foundation of my marriage and the way I raise my children and all of those things. My relationship with my spouse is because of Christ. So whether it's my conversation, my community, my family, it's all because I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What's the takeaway for us? I think though Paul writes a difficult text, I think the takeaway is very simple. And it's a prayer of Martin Luther that I think we can all pray and we close with this. Martin Luther prayed these words. Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, that I might become what I was not. May that be our prayer. When we read these verses, may we read, Yet not I, but Christ in me.